Welcome to the Library Love Fest podcast. I'm Virginia Stanley. I'm Lainey Mays. And Essie Ramirez. We are the library marketing team at HarperCollins Publishers. Join us every week as we present buzzworthy books through author interviews, conversations with editors, and expert opinions from librarians like you. Enjoy the show. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Check it out. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Brought to you by Library Love Fest. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Library Love Fest podcast. I'm Lainey, and today I am so delighted to tell you that I'm joined by Sarah McCoy. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Lainey. Hi, everyone. I'm so happy to be here. (laughs) Happy to have you. So Sarah McCoy is the New York Times, USA Today, and international bestselling author of the novels Marilla of Green Gables. We could talk about that forever. The Mapmaker's Children, (laughs) The Baker's Daughter, and The Time It Sewed in Puerto Rico. She previously taught English and writing at Old Dominion University and at the University of Texas at El Paso. I'm so delighted to talk to you today. We have become kindred spirits after we talked about Marilla of Green Gables and just that's probably one of the highlights of my job in these past five years, just talking about that book and talking to someone who just cares so much about it and brought so much care to Marilla when you did kind of a a prequel of sorts for Anne of Green Gables. Yeah, that was, I still think of the moment we met when we we came together to do that podcast, we were in New Orleans and I came down, I was actually in my hotel room and I came down the stairs and I saw you, Lainey, there and both of us at the same time, our faces like lit up and it was, it was like this like kindred spirit aura that just enveloped us. And ever since then, I really have felt like you, and I told you this off air earlier, but I'll say it again for everyone. I really felt like you were not just um, someone in publishing that I knew, but you were a friend for life, like immediately. And we have been, that's the crazy part is that I could have thought that and it could have ended up differently, (laughs) but it didn't. You are, you are, Lainey is my friend for life, everyone listening. And she, um, just comes with such energy and passion and love for the books that she talks about and brings to you all. So know that when she recommends a book, it is because it is worthy. It is absolutely worthy. All of the books that she recommends. So I'm honored to be among them. Oh my goodness. Well, you'll get your check later. Thanks for saying all that. That That was so kind. I I oh I can't that was so kind and I it's such a you are a delightful person in general but like all of your books I just think that you have such a way with words and you transform us into them and I just love spending time in the world that you write and I love spending time with you in person so overall it's just a a big love fest but um (laughs) We're here today uh, to talk about Mystique Island coming out in May, and I wanted to see if you could tell us a little bit about Mystique Island. Mystique Island. Mystique Island is coming out May 10th, and I am so excited because it is such a summer. It's like a big cut open lemon. It's just delicious. So I can't wait to share it. It opens in 1972. 
uh, when a Texan divorcee, Willie May Michael, uh, docks her boat on Mystique Island. And it's this exclusive enclave in the Caribbean that included guests like um, Princess Margaret and Mick and Bianca Jagger. There were a whole bunch of uh, rock musicians of the time who came there and Vogue fashion models, actors, famous architects designed it. Um, the houses on, on Mystique Island. There were even gangsters that came over there um, to just do what they want. If you had money and you were in some way glamorous, Scandal was welcome, and it was kept a secret there. So this book starts with Willie Mae, Michael, and her grown daughters, Hilly and Joanne. They are really the, the three focal points of this book, and it's broken down into their three perspectives. Uh, so we start with Willie Mae, and we learn why she's there and her desires and her wants, and, and she gets to know the islanders, the owners, uh, the tenants. They are Anne and Colin Tennant, who are quite the interesting pair themselves, very eclectic. They're real people. Go ahead and Google them. And as soon as you do, you will pull up pages and pages of unbelievable material. Stuff that, I mean, honestly, Lainey, I, <laughs> I had to take a bunch of it out because first off, it was just too much. Everyone, if you want to go and read Anne Glenn Connor's memoir, she has a memoir out and it is sensational. It is full of threesomes and swinging from chandeliers and the craziest stuff that I, I you know, I have a very, very conservative Southern Latina mama <laughs> who I just felt weird. I felt weird writing some of these really, really crazy stuff in this book. So um, I sort of took some of that and 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 made it a little better, and still had it the sensationalness in there, but not necessarily the actual <laughs> play by play. We'll just put it that way. Um, so they were the owners of this island and. Willie May is based on a real person. So um, I, when I started into this book, writing it, I was watching a PBS documentary called Margaret the Rebel Princess on PBS. And you can go and look that up. And I'm, I think it's on YouTube and all over the place. And so I was watching that. And as I watched it, there came to her wedding. And in that scene, it said, they were explaining that one of the gifts that the couple received was an estate or a plot for an estate on this exclusive private island. And it was given to her by one of her ladies in waiting and Glenn Connor, or sorry, this is confusing. Their names the, in royalty, their names were Anne and Colin Tennant. But because they are part of this um, royal hierarchy, they get another name. So it's sort of like Margaret, Princess Margaret has, a, you know, one last name and then, but she's the Snowdens or what they're called, you know, her and her husband together are the Earl and the um, Duchess of, you know, so 
you all understand this because you know British, you're probably as obsessed with British <laughs> culture as I am. So their royal name were the Glen Connors, the Baron and the Baroness Glen Connor. So I still don't know. And I don't know if you do, Lainey, and maybe someone out there does and they can like teach me something. I still don't know when you call them one name and when another. So I don't, but I feel like if anyone would know, it's a librarian. So maybe someone can write in and tell us. Yes, write and tell me. Like, when is it appropriate to call them Anne and Colin Tennant? And when is it appropriate to call them Anne Glenn Connor? Like she published her by name is Anne Glenn Connor. So when is it? Anyways, that is a whole nother thing. But fascinating. I could go down that rabbit hole. So these are the people who own the island and they invite their friends and they invite only the most beautiful. This is according to Colin's actual memoir, which I have and I read and I ordered from a little tiny bookshop in Sussex called Lord of the Isle, The Extravagant Life and Times of Colin Tennant is this book. And In it, he writes his extravagant life and times according to his perspective, which if you're slightly crazy, which he is, might be, some might say, then it is almost like fiction. And so I read this and I took a whole bunch of notes knowing that history, right? This is what librarians get too, that uh, historical fiction writers and librarians share is that history is decided by who is telling and who is listening that really those are the two fundamentals of what what is history and so because of that there's so many elements to it that are fudgeable and fascinating for a historical fiction writer to take and do something with and create an emotional resonance out of which is what I feel like all my books are trying to do create that emotional resonance because facts don't stick but if you feel like you've been to a place and you know it and you have an emotional connection that is going to stay with you a long time and that's what I was really aiming to do for Mystique Island is to bring it to the modern collective experience and say you know what we can't all go there and we definitely all can't go there during this heyday of when princess margaret was on the island at her estate that she was given on her wedding day as a wedding gift i mean who gets that as their wedding gift um we aren't going to be there with mick jagger and his well we might he's still there he's still there um mick well mick is like timeless he's like drunk from the fountain of youth that he's still on mystique island (laughs) walking the beaches so but i wanted to bring readers there um for them to feel what this sort of glitzy glamorous time period was uh through these characters who are very strong dynamic women living through a period that was changing for not just women but in the world we were changing from um really this colonial sort of inappropriateness that we that was not seen as inappropriate at the time. It was seen as just the way of the world into something that was a little more nuanced and people were reclaiming their heritages. And the Islanders were saying, okay, so you might be white, 
British people who have come over here and laid claim to our island, but this is a modern world in the 70s, and that's not going to fly really anymore because we're islanders and this is this is our home. So I wanted to play with that. All of that came into the braiding of what this story became. What started off as a mother-daughter family saga, that saga bloomed into this family style saga about the island and how it is its own kind of family dynamic that's like any family dynamic um, full of strife and beauty and um, paradoxes and things that just make us crazy and yet we we love our family members but I could kill them I could kill them you know so that is always, I think, in all my work too, fascinated me is those sort of dichotomies that push and pull against each other. Uh, so that's, you have Willie May, um, Michael, who I started into this spiral by saying that she's based on a real woman who I read about in Colin Tennant's memoir. I mean, it was just one or two lines about an American divorcee who divorced her brewery barren husband um, and then came to the island trying to find a place to call home because her British, uh, I guess, namesake over there had been tarnished by this divorce. And so she couldn't stay in England anymore. And she couldn't go home to America because she had left them for England and sort of um, never gone back to them and so she landed on mystique to try to make something new with her two daughters what makes um mystique island like a perfect place to start over for her and that's the that's the tricky part for her she thinks it's the perfect place because you can do whatever you want and scandal gets sort of embraced and erased uh, and that's where, again, they made up their own rules while they were on the island. The tenants did and, and everyone in their entourage sort of made up their own rules. And yet that's the danger, though, is that when you make up rules, then you don't really know how to play by the rules. So then everyone was breaking rules, really, in the making of the rules. And it just right there in this whole it creates a tangled mess and creates a mess. And so what they thought was establishing some new world order of perfection became a nightmare because there was no standards that were kept and yet there were standards kept. You know, it was like, we don't really, we're not gonna, we're not gonna judge anyone by their namesake, but, oh, but she is a princess. And remember, I am a baron and we do come from title and privilege. And it, it, it was just really complex and really yeah. uh, confusing, actually. So I tried to capture that confusion and convey it in a way that was understandable and was and empathetic. That's what I, I wanted it to be empathetic so that way we could see how that kind of draw sounds like it's going to be delicious and wonderful. And yet once you're in it, it actually can be a nightmare. It can be your undoing. It can be 
really um, tragic for you. And so that's, um, she thinks that this is where she's going to start over with her, for herself, for give her daughters a home um, to make a new. And it, it turns dark because it is a dark, there are dark parts to, to this yeah. whole scheme of, of Colin <laughs> tenants. Yeah. So I think you did such a great job saying everything that is layered into this book because it's so much more like it, it is a historical fiction. You're, you're setting it in the seventies on this like fabulous Island where you're seeing everyone come in and out, but there's so much more layers. And I think one thing that really stood out to me was the kind of discrepancy in wealth and class. And so you're seeing it with, you know, Princess Margaret, who, like you were saying, I, I'm here for fun, but also I do expect certain things. But then you see it with like the new money, like the Mick Jagger or the, the people who kind of come into wealth in a different way, they're still held to something too. And so you really see this island kind of scrambling to figure out what their new order is because they have so many different ones. And so Willie Mays sees that kind of coming in that she sees all of this wealth is really not distributed equally and people are not being treated equally. Why is she someone who can come in and see that? Is like that part of her background? Because she is from Texas. I don't know if you want to talk about that. Yes. So she is from Texas and from a, and I borrowed from the real person from a very tiny, tiny town in Texas where she was the beauty queen. Because back in, you know, in the 40s, particularly, um, 40s and 50s, Remember, they did all these sort of beauty pageants everywhere and every little tiny, tiny town had their beauty queen who rode in like the dairy float. You know what I mean? And like, I live in North Carolina now. And at Christmas, I went to um, this tiny town Christmas pageant parade and they had their own queen of the parade. And so that's where she gets her beauty queen title. And, uh, but she's actually was very poor. She came up from very poor people. And so what do, when you've come from nothing, um, what is your ultimate goal? To gain something, to gain everything, to feel like you have accomplished something to make your family proud and to make yourself proud and to feel that you are not that little person you used to be but you are something bigger now I think that's almost like a human quality for everyone um but particularly if you haven't if you didn't grow up or you didn't come from money privilege wealth all that um or even middle class, we are still always trying to struggle. I think the only people who are lazy <laughs> are people who are super rich and don't feel that they need to work to accomplish anymore because why? Why would I? What's the point? Um, so she, that I think she, coming from her background, being an American also lets her see um the island in a different way because it is inhabited by a lot of the British class. And for them, it's not even necessarily as money is important, but money is actually secondary to title and rank in the British system. And so title and rank are really number one. If you come from title and rank, that's the top. And then if you made a bunch of money, so like 
Willie May's husband, what they call him a, a brewery baron, but he was a little bit, he was a little tainted because he made his money in the working class. He wasn't of title. So she had money, not title. Um, and and that allowed, you know, because she was an American, she can see those things. So I think if I had made her or if she had been a British person, she might not have noticed so much the disparity between title money and then just normal people. So, um, so that was a great place for me to um, set the perspective from the beginning is from this, her, her character. Uh, I think uh, I bring in her daughter, Hilly and Joanne, who were raised in England, and they see it less. And you'll notice that in the actual narrative is that from their perspective in their chapter sections, they don't see the class as much as Willie Mae does. And it's very, very um, significant to her to see class and money, but not to her daughters. Who, and again, I wanted to give that sense of like, Ah, the generational shifting of perspective. And that is what sort of like can create a history. But is that the actual history? Well, maybe, maybe not. It depends on who you're hearing it through and from. So, um, so yeah. And then as you'll see, the island then is viewed by each of these three women a little differently. The island culture, the island people, um, and that was something fascinating. Being Puerto Rican, I went there with it. And um, I know that when I am home at my grandparents' farm in Puerto Rico, it is very interesting to see the cruise ships pull up and all these non-Puerto Ricans, which we'll put it that way, get off and they're touring and they're being tourists. And we love we love that. That's fantastic. But um, they like to think that they're in control. And really, the islanders who are there are the ones saying, hey, we'll sell you some paraguas. They're playing a role. Sell you some paraguas. Here, here, have some ice cream here. Ooh, ooh. And because they know that they're in control and they're this is how they're making their money for this you know for whatever business they're running and they know that tourists like it if they if they talk this certain way to them a lot of my relatives and I hope this doesn't come off wrong but a lot of my relatives they're brilliant smart business people and so they know that if they they speak perfect English too, like perfect, um, you know, American slang English. But as soon as, you know, they get around certain non-Puerto Rican, non-Hispanic people, they will play up a little their, their accent or whatever, just because they know it makes people happy. They'll start singing troubadour songs out of the blue. I'm like, what are you doing? You know? And they're like, oh, well, it makes people happy, you know, whatever, whatever makes them happy. Um, and I thought, so I pulled from that and I thought, um, and having visited some of the other islands, I've been to St. Lucia, um, St. John's I've been to, the Bahamas. And I always kind of get a little giggle because I, I see that in when I'm the tourist then, because I'm I'm then that tourist. And that's why there's no there's no wrong or right to any of these roles that we're playing. We all are playing these roles at some point. But when I'm the tourist on those islands, I see them kind of playing it up for me. And I have to sort of 
smile and giggle and I'm a little flattered because I'm like, that's so kind of them when I know they're probably, this is not, you know, this is not, they are in control and they want me to think that I'm in control and I'm not, but they want me to have a good time. And so, and they're smart people. And so again, that's another layer that was important for me to put into this book, because I don't think that that's a layer that I have read in other island or beach read books. Um, And in all of my work, I don't want to just tell a story. I want to tell a story that hasn't been told before, even if it's just this one thread of a way that a two different cultures interact with each other on one tiny island, you know? That's interesting to me. That's more interesting than telling the story that we've all seen or heard on reality TV. That's interesting. That's a cool narrative story. I love that. I I think that's also very, a fascinating thread to pull. So just to shift a little bit, I, you told us all about the great uh, research. I saw the tabs on the book, guys. Everybody, there's so much research, I'm sure. Um, but even in the book, like the heat, you can feel it. And like the the clothes, I was like drooling because it just seems so beautiful. Um, and there's a lot of pop culture. You know, we have like Billie Jean King in the background on a news article, or you have Mick Jagger. And like I said, the clothes. So uh, what was super fun to write about that? Did you have to research kind of like, did you find something cool and just and stick them in there? Or did you kind of have an idea? Uh, you know, I love going down those, uh, all authors, well, all good authors do love going down those sort of rabbit holes where you're like, oh gosh, I remember that, you know? So um, that was a lot of fun doing the research and getting into like um, the food of the seventies, the nostalgic food, Jello was like huge. And so, so that was a lot of fun doing the menus for this. Um, and I actually pulled from an actual, I got it off of eBay. Um, this is part of the research. I was so excited. I got the 1973 gourmet magazine that was that Mystique Island was featured in, and it's in the book in a in one of the chapters that they right. sent um, this reporter Jan because it was the off season in Mystique. Nothing was growing. No, there were no fish. So everything everything was out because it was it was the heat of summer and it was just nothing growing. So he Colin again. They brought in all this food and ordered from um, all over the place. I mean, from America, they just had it flown in and then put on these feasts with this food that didn't even come from there. And that's where a lot of the 1970s like nostalgia was. And also, um, I loved the music. That was another part of the research that I loved. I listened to a lot of Elton John. It was fantastic. Um, I So that was a lot of fun to get into that. And the clothing of the time, of course, was all like polyester and shiny. And that was super fun to, you know, go on Pinterest and look at a whole bunch of outfits and then pin them all to my board. I loved that. That was, I had the best time doing that. So uh, I'm trying to think of what other fun hairstyles I actually grew up. My mom used to dippity do. Does anyone, I'm talking like there's a crowd out there. Does anyone know? (laughs) Raise your hand. Um, But my mom 
growing up in Puerto Rico used to do, we called it, I called it dippity do my hair. She used to dippity do it, which is like this product from the seventies. That is this gel that they would put, she would put in my hair and it's naturally very curly and I blow dry it. So if you look at my website and you're like, she doesn't have curly hair. Well, this is what a good blow dryer will do. Uh, it's very curly, like kinky, very curly hair. And, um, and I love it. And she would take it and she would smooth this dippity do gel in my hair and twirl it around her finger, round and round and out. And it would make these huge, on either side of my head, like two pigtail cones, huge curls, like ice cream cones, hanging off of either side of my head. And that was my dippity do. And I loved it. And that was a huge thing in the 70s. It was actually a product that everyone knew about and did. And also rolling to straighten your hair growing up, my mom would roll my hair around my head and pin it. And then it would make it straight. So I had like two hairstyles, the dippity do, and then I had the wrap around my head. And so I got to feature these sort of ways that people did things back then. Velcro rollers also that I feel like we've forgotten and yet it was so much fun to go back and and talk about them and talk about when we used to wash our clothes on dry on racks and like have to rack your clothing and like hey that you know we still did that in the 70s and 80s so it was that was a lot of fun I really enjoyed that um a lot of our librarians <laughs> say they're like, please don't tell me the 70s is historical fiction. Like they're very upset about it. No. So I don't want to upset anyone by calling it historical fiction, but it's set in his it, historically, not this time. Maybe I should say that. Yes. And it was so funny because when I pitched this um, to my editor at HarperCollins, she was like, well, and she had the same reaction. She was like, it's historical fiction, but I hate saying that it's historical fiction because I still remember the 70s. And I was like, me, you know, me too. I'm from that whole generation. That's when I was growing up. And, and you know, I might not have been old enough to go to the swinging parties happening, but I remember that. Oh, and the television. I had a lot of fun writing about the television and the magazines. And again, like you said, the pop culture of the time, yeah. because um, that was... I mean, I'm thinking about it now. That was probably part of the peak of pop culture. You know, when you think about pop, pop culture, um, when it was being mass disseminated on media outlets, whereas before in the 50s and the 40s, you really had to get it from like magazines or a little bit, uh, you know, as television was coming up, but not so much, whereas the 70s was when it was just everywhere. So that was that was great fun. That was great fun to put all that in there. And it made it very, feel very fresh and new and sparkly in a modern way, you know, for a historical fiction novel. Well, I know we don't have much time, but I want to ask two questions. One is about the dedication because I thought it was so sweet to your grandmother. And so you said for raising daughter and granddaughters as boldly unique as the stars. And I thought that was so sweet. Did, did, how did she inspire you or how, yeah. Oh, wow. Um, so I think every, I love my grandmother, first off, my mama Maria, mama Maria Norat, 
she just turned 90 and she is just a spark of life even now I mean she loves being just outlandishly very much in mystique island style <laughs> let's just put it that way um and she but it's interesting because she is very wild and you know creative and like a burst of energy and yet she is very religious and she and I wonder if this is you know I'm sure this is that way for all mothers and she wanted her children to be good pious proper children and she had three girls and a boy and each one of her children was this creative spirit unlike the other and none of all of them sort of buck the system in their own way and made her crazy and yet she loved them and then each one of those girls my my tts and my mom they had children of their own who then they wanted to be pious and good and do all the right things and all of their children were creative spirits who buck the system of their and so i just find that again because the story has so much to do with generations and embracing who you are and sometimes you love and you hate and that's okay and sometimes you um are joyful and you are also incredibly sorrowful and that's okay um there are all these sort of ah qualifiers that we think something's either good or bad and it's neither it's always an in-between and that's the beauty of um stars even is that and that's why I dedicate it to her is that there there's a flow to the constellations above us sometimes they're bright sometimes they're dim but they're there they're always there and they're and we think that the sky is moving and the heavens are moving and really we're moving right the earth is moving and and that's that's all in that tiny little one-liner dedication that's like you're like oh my god you've overthought this but the tiny little one-liner dedication to my mom maria is i just want her to know that she succeeded in way with her children and her grandchildren in ways that she doesn't even know it's because it's so big and it's so vast, just like the heavens and the constellations and the stars. And she, I think that also it's important for me to tell everyone out there, even like breathing and, and to tell my, my grandma too, that you don't need to value yourself and rate your success by a parameter that someone else or the world has come up with. I don't think that that is success. I think success is achieved just like the stars by being unique and shining your brightest unique self. So. Oh, that's so beautiful. I, that's, that's a truly sounds like an inspiring woman, but also to have inspired you to know that people are multidimensional and that there's so many other things, you know, don't judge someone on, on one action. It's the person as a whole that comes through in this book by writing these really well-rounded women who are real and going through things and, and loving each other. And it's, 
it's very sweet. So um, I know she's proud of you. I hope so. I hope also, you know, I, I sometimes we know that like she knows that she um, is a unique wonder. But sometimes you need to be reminded. And so I think that's why I dedicated it to her really is because I think that she needed even at 90, even at the, at the ripe age of 90, to be reminded that um, everything she did was appreciated, even if it went unnoticed, because all she in her mind, all she did was raise kids. And I'm like, no, you raised stars and they and you raised grand grandchildren who are stars. And so that I think everyone out there, I say that to every everyone <laughs> out there that you never know what your light is doing. If you just keep shining it, you know, you just don't know who out there needs to see that right at that moment. So, yes. Let me just say that advice is given by no one other than the person I can think that shines her light the most for everybody. So I just want to remind everyone, you know, that, you know, it's perfect for book clubs. There's so much to discuss. As you can see, we could go on forever. But um, I really enjoyed this conversation talking about, you know, family loyalties, these these mother-daughter relationships, all the things in this book, um, including family loyalty, social class, um, structure, and um, there's just so much to dive into, no pun intended because it is near the water, but (laughs) dive into (laughs) with this book. And I really hope everyone um, gets a galley and really, really does start reading it. It comes out in May and... Um, it will be here soon and it's perfect. Oh, I'm so ready for warm weather. I'm ready to not just go there. I, I want it in my imagination. I want to be there. I want sunshine. I want it all. And that's what this book definitely has. And I actually, I think it was on, uh, it was a, a, a bookseller said that this book reminded her of like a rainbow. Like it just felt like a rainbow all the way through it. And I really, uh, that, that word from that bookseller meant so much to me because I felt without even knowing it and now looking back that is what I was channeling sort of this rainbow through that this all-encompassing all are welcome slide you know of just love in this book and so um that's what I hope that librarians and their readers all feel in the summer read this sort of rainbow that has to do with family and um friendship and women but not just women how women relate to those they love male and female I think that's all important and a little bit of scandal and it's a bit sexy yeah yeah Randy (laughs) (laughs) I I hope you all enjoy (laughs) thank you thank you for writing this book and thank you for talking to us today Sarah thank you Lainey it's a pleasure always with you Thank you for listening to the Library Love Fest podcast. For more information on this week's episode, go to librarylovefest.com. Enjoying the show? We would love to hear what you think. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Library Love Fest and on Instagram at Harper Library. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share the show with a friend. Lastly, if you enjoy our show, we bet you'll enjoy all of the other podcasts from HarperCollins Publishers. Find a list of shows at harpercollins.com forward slash podcast. See you next week.